This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Time for another episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guests on the podcast today are Kai and Drew of Aslan Brewing in Herndon, Virginia. Before we jump into that conversation, I just wanted to highlight a few things that we have coming up. First, the Craft Beer and Brewing Annual Best in Beer issue uh, is coming up in two weeks. Friday, October 19th, uh, magazine should arrive or start arriving to subscribers, and we will make that digital switch over so that that digital issue is available to you. That same day, John Hall, our senior editor, and I will jump on a podcast together and do a special edition of this podcast highlighting our winners from uh, our reader's choice, uh, reader survey, as well as uh, uh, his and my picks for our favorite breweries of the year and our editor's list of the 18 best beers in 2018. So stay tuned for that. A couple of events that we have upcoming, a brewery accelerator event for breweries and planning and young breweries happening in Denver, March 3rd through 6th. Uh, For more information or for tickets, check out breweryworkshop.com. Also next June 9th through 12th in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, our annual Brewers Retreat returns to the East Coast for a few days of small-scale brewing with some big-name brewers like Jason Perkins of Allagash, Phil Wymore of Perennial Brewing, uh, Will Myers of Cambridge Brewing, Neil Fisher of Weldworks Brewing, and a few more that have yet to be announced, but uh, will surely be fun to brew and hang with. Uh, Come join us and our brewer friends at this fantastic event. For more information, check out brewersretreat.com. All right, now onto the conversation. My guests on the podcast today are Kai and Drew from Aslan Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Am I supposed to lean in and say thank you? (laughs) <laughs> or should I just sit back here? We may we may actually kiss if we uh, if we get, get really close. Yeah. So anyway. tell me a little bit about this uh, this history of Aslan. You uh, you were mentioning earlier you started off with the two barrel system brewing all the time nonstop and did seven uh, hundred something barrels in your first year of operation on a two barrel system. Um, but you also noticed an interesting evolution for the brewery because you started with a you know pretty typical brewery strategy and then. Uh, kind of pivoted with the market into this hazy, fruity, stouty kind of uh, approach that you take now. Um, just give me a you know, quick couple-minute arc for, uh, for how that has looked for you guys as a brewery. For us as a brewery, completely unexpected because, um, like we were saying a little bit before, we were more interested when we launched this place trying to make products that worked for everybody and quickly decided that we didn't give a shit about that and wanted to make beers that we really enjoyed. It just happened to be hazy stuff. They were just barely creeping onto the market. A couple people were doing those things, like we were talking about Treehouse, Trillium, Tired Hands. These are literally the only people I can think of. Yeah, Bissell. Um, And then us little guys were just like screwing around with that stuff as homebrewers, and we're like, hey, we've got this two-barrel system, essentially oversized homebrewing, let's do this. And it took off. I mean, we didn't realize not only what size beer community we had here in Northern Virginia, um, or how many people would have been interested or dedicated to that product or how quickly we converted people who were like anti-IPA into IPA drinkers because of that style specifically. Um, and it just kind of skyrocketed. And it, and it also tends into like the whole, what we were discussing a little bit about, like beer nerds um, dictating how your business grows based on their trade values and the community demanding what products you make based on how often or how quickly they'll drink them. So our business model has kind of been Um, guided a little bit more through historical trends based on products that people like or enjoyed or we have positive feedback for and less about like what our aspirations for the market really are. So that that point in 2015 when more people started kind of jumping on this this, hazy bandwagon was an interesting one because getting actual details about how those beers were made was, was kind of a challenge. You had to do a fair amount of kind of reverse engineering and speculation and and test batching to, to kind of figure out how to even make these beers. Talk to me a little bit about your process on that. We actually had a good footprint from uh, home brewing. I mean, we, yeah. we made Mind the Hop many times through home brewing, the underground, which we don't really make much much of now. So Mind the Hop, which is a beer you guys still release commercially now, started out as a homebrew. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've, we've been doing that now for, what, five, six, six years? Six years, yeah. Um, and just 
further refine that to our palates. And then that became the building block of everything else we make. Tell me a little bit, what are those building blocks? Like, what, what did you find? And, and now, you know, one of the things that, that changed, depending on where you are, your water chemistry, you're going to have to make different adjustments to that. But, um, you know, and, and obviously there are different hop preferences. Uh, what were some of the, the kind of foundations that you found about that beer? Yeah, it was a combination of what your grist uh, composition was, what yeah. your, like you said, water profile. Um, we've always tended to lean more towards uh, a softer water profile. So. Yeah. More, more calcium chloride. Um, we didn't do the whole traditional, um, more gyps, you know, high gypsum salt to accentuate that sharp bitterness um, in the beer. Uh, temperature that you whirlpool at was was really important to us. Temperature that you dry hop was really important to us. Um, fermentation temperature. We really, I mean, we played around with it all. Everyone has a different theory on what produces the best product, but yeah. we've we've tested it even as commercial brewers and have come to a specific process that makes our beers unique or, or taste Aslan-esque. So one thing that we had conversations about as we started the brewery um, and then revamped those initial product offerings was where are we getting our inspiration from and how are we building this product um, to be us? We took our a lot of inspiration on executables um, from tons of different industries. And like, for instance, the whirlpooling stuff we were looking at uh coffee industry and extracts and coffee and coffee blooming and like how people are drawing more flavor from coffee at such high temperatures and immediately found correlations and we're like okay well we can look at that as an element to launching our whirlpool program and hop standing programs and things along those lines um and then we started looking into like well how does other elements of the culinary world really apply to what we're doing and we found even more caveats to like steal from this industry or that industry and apply here as as brewers so um that's that's another thing that we're just like we're always looking at not necessarily following old guard and tried and true test methods from within the brewing industry not that they're wrong but they should be questioned and that was a mindset we took on to to kind of build new product or a new approach to making traditional product that makes sense. What surprised you the most? What did, what were some of the the things that you discovered that uh, you that may be counterintuitive that you found through that process? Well, I think the first thing that we noticed right away, like Drew was saying a few minutes ago, is simplicity. Like as home brewers, and looking at clone recipes or people talk about recipes, is like there's five or or six different malts in a homebrew recipe for what reason? And well, if it, you need a little bit of two row for sugar extraction, but you need a little bit of carafoam and 60L and meloidin for body and color and head retention, why can't we just find one element that does that or, you know, simplify this and go back to the basics, right? So we started doing a lot of that. Yeah, generally we have like from a, a grain bill, two, maybe three different types of malts. Yeah. Um, and, and we found that keeping it simple has created the best product. Are there some <clears throat> some favorite varieties for you in that that uh, you find you know produce the kind of malt body and complexity that you need you know as a to kind of support this kind of aggressive hop regimen? Yeah, it it really depends on the style. But for yeah. IPAs, um, we we try to lend more towards uh, like Maris Otter mm-hmm. or a pale malt, um, and then some combination of of flaked products, oats wheat etc yeah what kind of ratios do you use around those um for flaked for flaked oats we do yeah easily 10 to 15 percent yeah the the high end would be 80 20 yeah we'll go as high as 80 20 and as low as i think one product has like five percent oat in yeah. it but yeah we're usually in that 80 20 90 10 so more didn't produce a noticeable result for you or and that's our opinion yeah no we yeah. We, we found um it's it's all i want from you here is is your opinion oh no (laughs) (laughs) there are no objective rules or laws (laughs) i'm just thinking about what every other brewer right now like that will listen to this podcast will be like like, that's bullshit i know (laughs) you know like fucking 60 40 works or whatever you know what i mean it's like eh, whatever works for you man cool It's also a if, if everybody like, agreed on everything, then we wouldn't need to talk about these kinds of things. So, <laughs> uh, you know, throw it out there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Screw all you sixty forty people. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I guess I guess what we're saying is, just if we can't notice a difference, we're not going to waste the time, right, right? You know, making longer louders and runoffs and all that kind of crap. 
make it harder on our brewers. But if we can notice a difference, we're going to continue to do that, which is why we went through all these experimental stages, 15 and 2016, just like every time we executed this known product that we had, um, what's the one thing we're changing this time? And is that different? Is that noticeable? And can we trace that down to being the change in the executable or the change in the recipe? And if we like it, do we continue to do that or what are we changing next time? You know? Yeah. And, and there are other things in the recipe that lend to bigger mouthfeels. What is your water composition, mash temperature, etc. Yeah. Salts. Um, speaking of that water, you know, that that's a core ingredient and a, a core component in this. And we talked a little bit about, um, you know, how you treat it. But wh- where's your water come out of the ground at? Do you guys reverse osmosis treat it? Do you strip we it down? We use gallons of Poland Springs. Poland Springs. I just stand <laughs> up there every day. Ours comes out of a hole in the floor. Yeah. Um, we don't really know where it comes from. Yeah. A bunch of elves down there. It's, it's a big well. Who It's a mystery, man. Who really knows how plumbing works anyway? Yeah, it's just town of Herndon water yeah. Yeah. that we treat to... Um, mm make it our own yeah so that was one of those other conversations we had about you know like what's true to the the historical brewing world like the guys that are replicating munich waters and vienna waters and whatever like stout guinness water yeah burton untrant water um it was like that those dudes were just making beer with the stuff they had available so why wouldn't we do that and that's what we decided to do and that was town of herndon water the only thing that we get is like whenever yearly or quarterly they're Right, or whenever they're treating it, we have to be prepared that like one day we're gonna have this huge pH drop or spike yeah, based on how yeah. much chlorine they're throwing in the damn thing, <laughs> right? So, um, and we've seen that and we're like, all right, well, what's the remedy? That's kind of the game. But other than that, it we're we're pretty true to that. When we move to Alexandria and we start brewing there, we're gonna have to revisit this because I know the water there is gonna be different, and we're not necessarily concerned, but we have to look at well, how are we gonna bring it back to the product type that everyone knows. So hopefully it won't be too difficult. Do you have an ideal chloride sulfate ratio that you uh, you push for? Two to one. Yeah. So pretty standard. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We have one product that's four to one, um, and that's interesting. So. Yeah. I mean, most of our IPAs are, and double IPAs have a different ratio. Yeah. Um, and that... That must make it fun for your brewers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they have a recipe sheet. It's pretty, yeah. pretty easy, but... Um, that just came from testing out, um, you know, different different ratios, and we found that certain beers we like to have a little bit larger, that we like to have a little bit larger mouthfeel. We'll add more chloride to it, um, and vice versa. Yeah. Maybe talk about hops for a little bit. You know, obviously, you know, most consumers, you know, look at the the name of the hop on there and have some idea about what it tastes like. Um, how you know what is your approach there? You are constantly creating. Um, behind you, I see a roll after roll after roll of, of uh, label for different beers. Um, you produce a very very wide range of them, um, and are, are constantly trying to create a new and exciting experience for the people that are drinking your beer because that's what your consumers want. Um, how do you go about you know building that kind of interest, and while at the same time making sure that you're producing the quality of beer up to the standards that you want to release? Most of our recipes, like I was saying, are um, food-inspired or, or drink-inspired. Drink right. So what we do is we say, hey, we want to make this beer or IPA have these flavor notes to um, be modeled after a cocktail or whatever. And then we go out and see what different hops are out there and what we can add and what we can um, get out of each hop. And we, we add a different hop to a Whirlpool to get clementine or whatever yeah um, out of it and that's how we kind of make our recipes or generate our recipes coming at it from a production standpoint i mean it's hard to kind of to just throw it in there and get something and, and go through this long test process that could be you know several weeks from the time you do that to time you get a result um you know how have you guys honed in a sense for these just from rubbing and sniffing uh, to kind of get an idea for how these all, these combinations are going to work. All of 2016, we did that. Yeah. We would just make, so Mind the Hop really is our base double IPA beer. We make all the Johans with that beer, um, any Mind the Hop variant, any of the fruited IPA variants with vanilla, like our 50-50 bars, sorbet, all that is Mind the Hop. Yeah. And before we launched these different fruited and Johan series, they were designed to be like pilot batches in-house for what happens when we do this with Citra or like what happens when we do this with Nelson and 
we just learned from trial and error and throwing things away and wasting a little bit of money that this temperature at this time or during this stage in fermentation or during this section of dry hopping, we got the result we wanted. We noted that and just we're very analytical and data driven about the how we were testing things. So in the future, when it came time to actually make like an all Nelson beer or something along those lines, we were like, well, this is how we want to start our executables. And if the product comes out good, we'll remember that. If it doesn't, then we'll adjust. And lucky enough, we've been pretty close on guessing based on, um, you know, uh, oil levels and alpha acid levels. Like this is how we can handle X product when we know those numbers. So we also were a two barrel system. So right. Being able to experiment is a lot easier, and we can sell out of that beer relatively fast. If we started as a 15 or 30 barrel system, our process may have been different. We may have been brewing on a you know a Sabco half barrel system yeah. to really evaluate what type of profiles those hops are going to have on our beer. But having a two barrel system, you do 60 gallons of something, it's going to go quickly, um, and having a good idea from home brewing what those hops will add um, allowed us to play around a little bit as we've grown. And your customers have rolled along with you as you did that and en- enjoyed the the test process. Did, was there a, a feedback mechanism there or was it simply just Untap- talking to people? Untapped. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we created a beer You say that with a, a cringe as you, you know, cower away from the microphone. Well, well Drew's <laughs> going to show you this label for uh, One Star. But everyone has, like, their ups and downs with the social media world. It's a demon. Just look what they're doing to the poor president. No, I'm just kidding. So these, these, <laughs> these are what our customers think of our beers. Um, no, there were actually... For those listening, I mean, what, what I'm looking at a label here with actual comments uh, from one-star ratings on Untapped where you've you've taken the, the worst that people have said about you and, uh, and made it a brand. The PG-13 stuff. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Utterly disposable. There really needs to be a return option. Not a very good beer. Smells like poop. Tastes weird. But I don't know what else to say. Stop being weird, Aslan. As much as like this complaint, a one-star review can seem like hurtful and and whatever you want to interpret from it. It's also first off funny, but secondly, there is some valid feedback here, right? There, you you as a brewer or you as a as a as a producer of a product might have made a bad decision and this guy's letting you know you should rethink it or retest it but if, the, if if he stands out as like that one in a million that was just like not digging the product that day like okay take it for that right and move on maybe there's a bunch of other four or five star ratings that are cool and you know there's an interesting point about untapped and i try to to have this conversation with brewers because you know some folks do take it personally and yeah. it's hard when you are uh, putting your creative blood, sweat, and tears into something, and people don't take it as seriously or or look at the stakes the same way that you do as the product creator, it can be you know disappointing, frustrating, and you know it can lead to some negative reactions. But when people use online rating systems, they are rating it for themselves. You know, they are rating a beer whether they like it or not because they're using that as a tool to remind themselves what they had that they liked. You know, they are not, you know, and you can't expect from a consumer to objectively rate against the rest of the world of beer this thing that they're drinking because they don't have that experience. Yeah. They don't have that breadth and, and they don't approach an app that way. They are approaching it from a, do I like this? And that's why, I mean, I see the half star rating. I don't like stouts, half star. I'm like, yeah. why are you checking why'd them you in? Why'd you order a stout? Why, <laughs> why, why'd you rate that? Yeah, you know, no, everyone feels that way. You know, and you'd think that, but but it makes sense for them. Like, well, I, I thought it was a 0.5. It might be a great beer, but I don't like stouts. So for me, it was a point like, you know, it's, it's rational. Yeah, on the stamp. I would, know, from the standpoint I would the totally consumer. love to adopt that perspective, and I absolutely agree that for some people, I'm sure they're using Untapped as like a note-taking system to remind themselves. But too many times, again, I see people like be the first one to check a beer in, and the next comment is, "Was it worth going to get?" or like, "Is this worth buying?" Blah blah blah. Like, well, if it's for that one individual, then why are why are we ma- building a commentary around it? And I feel like beer advocate has become this way there's a very small amount of people that use beer advocate anymore because it's such uh, like a, a heavy system inundated way of like rating and you have to really be involved and passionate about making a review of something because it requires so much of you that there are a handful of guys who do that for everybody and there's 10 times as many more people who go on and read what that guy just wrote and they use that as their influence marker untapped is the shortcut version of that for sure. people who've never been exposed they go on untapped and they look at like 
what the most recent ratings are, what the overall rating is of that product, and they go, okay, this is or is not worth my time based on whatever their mental scale of like acceptable good products might be. And like that's, I don't know if that's a fear not people should have, but it's definitely something to be aware of when launching a brewery. You know, there there's an interesting question about that because you know, especially when you start talking about millennials and social media users, um, a significant portion of luxury consumption. And and I think we have to refer to, you know, 16 to $20 four packs of, of beer (laughs) as luxury luxury (laughs) consumption. I mean, this is, these are not staple goods. These are not, you know, core necessary, um, you know, food items. Mm. Um, They're a luxury item. And a lot of our luxury spending today, you know, at this, you know, whether it's uh, a nice meal out at an expensive restaurant or a, a $20 four pack of beer is built around the social media validation for your, your individual choices. Yeah. And so from the standpoint of that consumer, they want some, they want to get a sense that they will be validated for making that spend. Yeah. And so I think that's where some of that kind of give and take comes from. I mean, it's a double edged sword. Would we have people willing to spend this on high end products like this? And these luxury goods if they didn't get a sideline benefit of of that social media validation sure. for their own personal choices you know or would they you know just go back to buying whatever's on the shelf it makes beer like a team sport right like, <laughs> yeah everyone's getting a participation award with that one thumbs up you know <laughs> um yeah i i do not disagree with that um it's definitely sad if that's the case maybe and i don't know if it's sad that's wrong to say i guess um it, it lends to some very interesting dynamics between consumers and producers, right? Or manufacturers. Um, this, this dynamic that's created between their opinion and, and what your value or perceived value, right? Right. So how, what are some of the weirder ways that that's manifested for you guys? So we talk a lot about, you know, um, imagery infringement, like the way our labels are specific to how Mike Van Hall's made them and how many other breweries see the success in like our Instagram or the photos that um, Liz tracks does for us for Instagram and the exposure we're gaining like as soon as you start seeing like those themes or ideas show up in other people's labels um, like that whole was that old world saying of like um, you know replication is like a form of flattery like they're copying imitation the imitation. purest form of flattery exactly yeah. thank you and that and it's so true um, that, that is absolutely true from across the board, whether it's our labels and our product style or our our beer, the product we're producing. Um, you start seeing like we're the forerunners in like being stupid with IPAs as far as making them taste like dessert product, but in an IPA format like a pecan pie or cinnamon toast crunch beer. And I don't know if technically I should say we're the forerunners in that, but I know we've done it and not a lot of people are doing it. And now you start seeing pa- like pastry IPAs, pastry IPAs. Exactly. <laughs> you start seeing that stuff pop up like generally close to you. And you're like, okay, well maybe they also were interested in that idea. And it just happened to happen around the same time we did ours or they think we had mild success with it and they're interested to see how it goes. Right. They're testing the waters. So how, what did make you decide to make pastry IPAs? All right. So this goes way back to that conversation in the beginning where um, we're back in home brewing. And I was like, an idiot at the time clearly still am I want to make a white stout and everyone was like well basically you're talking about like a barley wine or a wheat wine or something like that and I was like no no it's gonna be more like an IPA but with all the same crap you get in stouts right and it just finally came up to the point where we had a tank open one day and I was like we're gonna do this thing and he wanted to push a beer that was more like a stout around um, cinnamon toast crunch and I finally was like let me do the IPA with your cinnamon toast crunch thing we're gonna make it work and it killed and it worked out fantastically so again going back to like not following old guard rules not like feeling like we've been put in a box like all those adjuncts and goofy shit that people think that our pastry style beers should only go into dark stouts or dark ales um like barley wines and stuff that that they can be executed well across the board in other product lines it's just trippy for consumers and they're looking at like what looks like a hazy new england ipa and then they drink it and it tastes like cinnamon toast crunch you know, uh, now, there are some brewers out there that think you may be the antichrist for, uh, <laughs> I for going that direction. Oh, there's tons of brewers out there that think that we're the antichrist because we make hoppy New England style IPAs. Like this whole East versus West Coast bullshit and this like haze versus non-haze thing. Like, God, I wish we had a time machine to go back in time when macro beers in the 60s and 70s were watching the first micros pop up making the West Coast beer and then 
how like if we could mimic the the availability of opinion through social media or direct thought of another like stream of conscious bullshit that people do on Twitter, uh, like what those those macro guys would be saying about the first few IPAs or West Coast style IPAs. You know, like how blasphemous it is to like add this much or to do it this way. We haven't done it this way since the 1870s, and like nobody does it this way anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it would be so interesting to see the the script flipped on these guys. No, that's a really good point. That West Coast IPA was something dramatic and new and challenged all previous preconceptions. It was not something that was historically relevant to the way IPA had been made before. It was a completely different and new approach to push that kind of bitterness with that that kind of you know non-ester you know yeast profile and come up with something that was so sharply bitter. And yet, you know, and, and at first there were lots of people that, that bristled at that, and then people got used to it, and then they started liking it, and then it became this de facto thing. But it really, I mean, it became a de facto over what, like 2005 to 2012? Mm. I mean, you know, we look back at it now because so much of craft beer right now in 2018 so many breweries are less than five years old at right. this point. And we think right. of that as this ancient past, but I, mean, I started drinking craft beer in 1995 when I turned 21. Like, I mean, you, I, IPA wasn't a thing when I started drinking craft beer. Yeah. And so that West Coast thing has risen and then now kind of peaked maybe and uh, is is being, uh, is watching another rise now of this New England style IPA. And right. at the same time, New England style IPA is going to peak at some point here Agreed. and something else is going to happen because we can expect that much out of beer. Agreed. 100% with everything you said. Plus, I like how um, fancy you make everything. I took 10 minutes to say, like, surmised in one one conversation or one statement. It's, it's great. It's my job as an editor. That's what I do. <laughs> it's I fantastic. I wish you were here all the time. You would simplify a lot of conversations. Um, but on top of that, it, the reaction isn't, isn't uh, un- unnatural. Like, the, the fear of something else coming in and stealing away what you know as your bread and butter, your staple house, is a concern for people. And this is true across the board. It's not just beer, but it's politics. It's, it's you know, people's life style. And when something new and flashy comes along, it intimidates them and it scares them and they have a, a, a gut reaction to say and do things that if they had time to stop and evaluate and really think about, like, that impact, would they say those things or would they do these things? And like, you know, would they really want to hold themselves accountable in 10 years when they're also making this style or, or whatever happens, right? It's so. kind of like skinny jeans. Skinny now you jeans. see all these brewers wearing skinny Everyone jeans. Everyone wears skinny jeans. If they start wearing cut off <laughs> pants, I'm going to start smacking people. So, I mean, at the same time, you guys run a business, you have employees, you know, you have a responsibility to the people who work for you. You, you have investment of money and time in this. I don't know how you, if you have outside investors that have expectations, but you know you do have to have a, a business that's successful, and so you have to worry somewhat about you know how how things are going and hope you know and, and protect what you have. I mean, it's not a irrational thought to to want to um, maintain yeah. what you have. Yeah, I don't disagree with that either. It's weird. Why am I so complicit with everything you say? <laughs> it's like he's inside your mind. <laughs> he's in my brain. You feel that right there? Yeah, I'm fucking your brain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but for you guys, I mean, you can put little bleeps on all these things, right? Absolutely. Oh, that'd be awesome. No one's ever done that for me before. They just let me swear away. You can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but but for you, you have to, you know, imagine every now and then you, the the thought hits you late at night after you've been drinking a little bit too much, and you wake up at three o'clock in the morning. And you're like. What happens if this goes away? Yeah. And what happens if you know if we don't have this to you know fall back on? Um, and what would that? What would the business look like for you if that happened? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I know. We we pride ourselves. Well, kind of are very competitive. So yeah. um, one, we do whatever it takes, right? Um, but two, I think we spend a lot of time researching industry industry trends and you've said a couple times that you're competitive and you know the the culture of craft beer is such that some the idea of competition and being competitive might strike you know rub some the wrong way but we're used to that so we just don't really care (laughs) i mean it's kind of bad to say but like we want to be the best at every i do at least want to be the best at everything and um if it rubs another person in our town the wrong way, it's like, so be it. Yeah. I think, I mean, you spent some time at crooked run today. Like 
Those guys are our direct neighbors. They're our first line. They called us this morning for ingredients. It's not like we're so competitive we're going to be like, no. You know what I mean? They, we're saying we're competitive and it sounds intimidating, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be friends. We're not going to be friendly, that we can't work together, that we don't have something to learn from you or you from us. And like, we've never said no to anybody. We're still good people and nice. We're just like, if this is the field to play, we're in a game right now. Like, we're going to win. We would like to win. We're out here to do our best and be the best at what we do. And like I said, we've, we've definitely not achieved that yet. And we have tons of critics that are willing to tell us otherwise, which is great because we're using that as jet fuel to continue our search, right? Yeah. You know, I hear you. When I, If I'm playing pickup basketball with friends or if I'm out. Oh, you're not tall enough for basketball. Get out of here. No, right? I know. I know. <laughs> Or, or mountain biking with my buddies, you know? You, you goddamn right, I want to be the first one at the top of that hill, yeah. and uh, I want to beat them. No, we're still friends, yeah. and we're still going to crack a beer open you know, as soon as we're done with the ride or the game. Um, but, I mean, you know, a little competition makes everybody better. Yeah, sure. And I'm not, I, I will definitely admit that being so open about our competition has put us in hot water with other brewers. They are intimidated. They don't know how to deal with it. They hold you at arm's length, and that has an effect on both of those breweries um yes ours and theirs because you can't you can't have a good relationship if you're not willing to look beyond a statement as bold as we are competitors you know what i mean so you know you mentioned as we were talking before the podcast that um you when you initially launched the brewery you were pretty secretive about your processes and um you know taking you some some work and a lot of testing to come up with what what you'd found but over the last year or two that you've kind of loosened the, the grip on that mm-hmm. and that you have been more open with, with sharing what you've learned out of that process. What, why that change? Um, it comes down to as simple as nobody can do what we're doing. I could literally write out right now, I could hand you our brew recipe for the collab that we're doing with Bottle Logic tomorrow. Uh, no. Um, and no one, would, no one would be able to replicate that product. I have no idea what that's going to taste like right now, but if that was another recipe like one of these other ones we got here. That it looks like it's going to taste good, though. It does look like it's going to taste good. Um, like, here, here's Laser Raptors. This is one of our products that everyone knows. I'm, I hand you the recipe now. Like, nobody... There's the temperatures. There's the salts we're using. You know what our mash size is based on the conversation we just had. Like, there's our grist bill. Go make that beer. Make it Laser Raptors. I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do it. Like, you will be damn close. You could probably make something that most uneducated consumers are going to go yeah this is this is it they did a good job making a clone but it's not going to be the original product quick i'm going to take a picture take a picture (laughs) put it on the intergram right and and, i mean i'm probably i sound very arrogant saying that right no you don't but it's the same though for us like if crooked run gave us yeah raspberry empress i mean it would taste like we made it not yeah you're you're far from the first brewer to tell me the same thing yeah you know it's it's a pretty common thing and i think that you know i I think that most people that that homebrew don't necessarily take that into consideration that you know all these recipes are starting points and there are so many additional you know ingredient variables and whatnot that um you know, you ultimately, in order to make it taste the way you want to taste, need to make your own adjustments, you know, to all of these recipes, no matter what they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, surprise. We're and only technique. Using I mean, technique is the whole additional oh. layer on top of, oh, of we that like to recipe. Oh, finesse question. here. Okay. <laughs> we're fancy. No, but uh, on top of that, like, surprise for the industry, we're using the same ingredients everyone else is using. We're right. using water. We're using some malts, some oats, some salts, and yeast. Like, all right. <laughs> there's no, there's no big surprise. So they got some hops in there too. I don't know. I feel like I'm shocked by that. Let's talk about some of your weird ingredients. You know, since since you guys are known for these beers and these culinary beers, um, and let's talk about some of the ways that you found to get some successful results out of out of some of these stranger ingredients. Um, are there any specific examples that you can think of of some out of the box culinary beer ideas where? Um, you know, the, you learned something from the way that you added those ingredients into the beer. The rosemary IPA. We yeah. we did a an IPA with rosemary in like the winter of 2016. 15, yeah, or 15. December. December of 15, and like it came from a white paper we found on WileyJournal.com. There's like a whole brewing section of like pH article or PhD articles, and it was talking about like the extractions extractions of linalool in Duran. Geranol, right? I don't Geraniol. even know. Yeah, Geraniol. thank you. Uh, and we're like, we're like, well, what other? And the article went into like, well, these other plants, and just like as a abstract, 
just reference they're like well these other plants that you know uh rosemary and so on and so forth have these things in them and it just lit a light bulb off in the, the three of us and we're like why don't we just try using rosemary and see what that does right and it worked out i mean obviously it had a rosemary flavor to it but it also had like this citral element and was like really bright and flavorful and wasn't overwhelming and we've done that beer like three times now so and by far nobody knows anything about it other breweries have done this we weren't the first to do it i don't believe um but it's an underrated product and i think it's a fantastic um platform to say like look we're different than just like hops in a beer and how how did you go about adding that rosemary into the beer uh originally i think what we did was we pestled a whole bunch of it and uh steeped it as a whirlpool and then had a small element in dry hop so the last one i think we did everything in whirlpool without pestling we just hung the bag Hmm. knocked out onto it and that heat extracted everything we wanted fermented and we were good dried fresh yeah fresh fresh okay fresh yeah from a sensory perspective you know did it remind you of of specific hops or, or were there those hops characters that it, that it kind of captured well, we also or was it vanilla thing? to it to balance because it does have that like that bitter yeah pine-esque yeah flavor um very herbaceous um but the vanilla kind of balances that out kind of reminds you of like a thanksgiving meal almost hmm. with you know you have that citrus cranberry thing that you could have at thanksgiving so citrus and pine and that that unique rosemary flavor um vanilla adds like this backbone or this artificial sweetness that mm. people enjoy i mean that's the one thing i like about vanilla actually is it's this backbone to other flavors and it really allows you to accentuate cinnamon for example or, or whatever mm-hmm. it may be it's kind now, of vanilla is an expensive ingredient and yeah. it sounds like you guys use a fair amount of it yep yeah the vanilla industry loves us, I think. Yeah. It's, it's expensive, especially because we like to use, like, real extract or real bean or a combination of those two things. Um, not not the artificial products or whatever, reduced artificial products that right. are made of, like, ethanols and things like that. We're not interested in using them. We think that they're too easily detectable in product. So, um, Let's talk about that a little bit. I like that idea of that mix of actual extract and vanilla bean and that's that's something i have heard some brewers talk about that mm-hmm. uh it all gives them that punch of flavor but you know at the same time kind of grounding some of that extract flavor with the natural bean character um h- how do you guys go about getting you know that maximum effect out of vanilla we don't really trial know. and error <laughs> trial and error <laughs> i mean everything's trial and error quite right? sure it just worked out and then we know like based on the ratio of product we're making um, what we need to prepare and use. Okay. And, like, again, that came down to, like, this doesn't have enough. We need to use a little bit more. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> like tasting it after the fact. <laughs> exactly. Like, we more. actually we got down to the point where we would be like, measure a sample of beer out of the tank and weigh it and then know exactly what the weight of the adjunct was that we were putting yeah. in. So we'd have a de- definitive ratio. And then we would do math out and be like, is this a ridiculous amount of adjunct we're going to add to this tank? Or is that does that sound ballpark right? and then make the decision whether or not we were just going to go ahead and execute that needed amount has worked so far with the exception of lemon that thing's a bitch lemon is like the worst (laughs) you always need more than you think really yeah yeah what are your how do you balance the with vanilla again with the bean versus extract is this a 50 50 is it uh again we're gonna get into ratios because everyone in this kind of beer wants to talk about ratios um originally it was uh 100% 100% all bean then we moved yeah. to a 50-50 now we're mostly extract with just a small amount of bean yeah. So. yeah I think it depends on the beer yeah I'm lending towards like on average what do we normally do are you? nah I'm making it up mm. are, there any, are there any more uh, you know pastry or adjunct kind of ingredients that uh, that you've had interesting results with you know that, that you found noteworthy or that you found that your initial thought about the way you used it um, didn't work out and you had to yeah. go back to ground zero yeah well so we tried to do the same thing with um mint that we did with the rosemary fresh in the whirlpool knockout on it get an extraction we over extracted we made like this ridiculous mint bomb um i don't know why you're saying we but i did i did it <laughs> i did it. it was my idea and I was, I was very confident that it was gonna work i was wrong <laughs> i'll admit that now no so it it totally was like a learning experience we're like all right well now we have a better idea of how to do this next time um now obviously juxtaposed to that cinnamon we found 
really good ways of extracting cinnamon and getting the, the yeah, result. Yeah, we've we learned want. and we've learned the hard way that there are different types of cinnamon. <laughs> like if, if if you're not paying attention, you're at the right. say grocery store and you're buying. I don't know. Well, what cinnamon do we usually use? I always mix these up. Well, it's not cassia. That's yeah. the wrong yeah, one. Yeah, but <laughs> so, someone bought cassia, and it just gave a different type of profile that we did not want. It was, it was harsher, I yeah. guess, is, yeah. is the best way to explain it. A little it. Mexican red hot flavor. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rough. Um, so now it's like on our ingredients. Yeah. Generally, we order a bunch in advance, so it's not yeah. a big deal. But when you were a two-barrel system and you're going through this process it would, it's easier to go to the grocery store sure because you don't we didn't know what right, the right. what the ratios were at that time so that's that's one that I think we've learned I don't know what else when it comes to adding these in the tank do you all recirculate do you bag and, and drop in a in a tank or how do you get the how do you kind of maximize the we've, extraction we've done everything you could think of or you've heard from every other brewery yeah about what they were done and we've landed on we prefer to uh, load the bag, hang the bag, and then rouse the tank with CO2 yeah. and move the solution around yeah. the element we're adding versus um, recirking the yep. entire thing. Yeah. We're afraid of oxygen and yeah, we try to minimize that yeah. the introduction as much as possible. I mean, you can purge it, but if you have a bad seal on a pump, right, you may not know till after the fact. Yeah, or you just have one loose tri clamp or something. You're you're just making a vacuum right there. It's just it's too frightening to risk like it, we may be a larger brewery now making 5,000 barrels a year but that's still nothing and when you lose a product that has like whatever x dollars of revenue it could be it it hurts sure right so how about dry hopping you know that's that's one where there are you know brewers are growing more attuned to the the you know opening up the tops of tanks to drop hops oh in. yeah we've been doing that shit from the beginning <laughs> that's the only way we dry hop um, yeah, we, we've gone through that whole evolution as well. Yeah. And uh, we're still kind of playing around with a few things as far as, like, which hops work best where. Yeah. Whether that's, like, um, po fermentation hop additions. We're pretty settled on. We're not doing that. Uh, Post-fermentation, what temperatures. And we always rouse the tank. So we, mm -hmm. have, we have a process of, like, essentially if it was the same as an adjunct beer, we're adding hops. And we for a series of days, we rouse the tank. There's no recirculation. Right now, it's down to like what temperatures are we doing that at? Um, what ratios are we doing like T90 to lupulin? Um, or are we doing that at all? Right, exactly. So. And it's generally two to three days. Mm -hmm. There's diminishing returns after that. Yeah. Um, so we have it down to time as well. Really, I think the last thing that we're still working on. What, what, what temperature do you dry up at? Right so now, it's yeah. like 60 to 65 degrees. Yeah. Okay, so relatively warm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a pain in the ass when you have like a 40 barrel tank that we harvest. We've adjusted our yeast process as well to accommodate our dry hopping procedure. Yeah. So now we're harvesting beer for um, selection at like 50 degrees just so that like in a day or two, it can get back up to 65 to get the temperature range that we want for our dry hop. Um, yeah. What difference did you see compared to, you know, colder dry hop approach? Way more flavor profile. Yeah, just not as bold. Because we, yeah. when we were um, home brewing, um, or even on a two barrel system, we would test it. So we did, we'd crash to 34 degrees, harvest the yeast, dry hop, keep it at 34 degrees, burst or agitate with CO2. Or we would cold crash to 34, dry hop, let it free rise. But the difference between four barrels of uh, wort or beer free rising and 40 barrels of beer free rising is it takes a lot longer yeah. so time finding that balance um, as we brew was a learning process for us yeah so the the last little bit of experimentation that we're working on right now is um, what kind of uh, what kind of benefits do we get out of additions during whirlpools hop stands and time like for us we've learned some fruits work better in a whirlpool hmm. at higher temperatures because of like this caramelization effect they would get the same as if you would have accidentally burnt them in your pan as a homebrew yeah. um, and other fruits do not do well with that at all and they get manipulated or destroyed beyond any kind of salvageable range um, some hops are the same way you put a hop in the whirlpool it gets 
degraded and destroyed over certain temperatures. A lot of guys that are doing hop oil extracts will tell you like 160, 140, 164 degrees is is detrimental to a lot of hop oils that you're looking to retain in the product. So lower temperature whirlpools is kind of the, the way to go. We haven't worked our way down there. We have a number that's in that range or better yeah. that we prefer because of the one hop that we are executing a lot of at higher temps. Um, but that, that might simplify some dry hopping in the future. If we can extract flavors in the whirlpool on a knockout, then then wasting time to climb up the ladder and like throw 44 pounds or 66 pounds or something. Are you still bittering early on or first toward? Or We've you? eliminated all bittering in the okay. brewery. So. Eliminated all bittering. Um, and, and so how then do you... How then yeah. do you... We haven't eliminated you. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I am the most bitter element in this brewery. You... You will 100 like IBUs. <laughs> uh, I'm not wearing my grumpy cat shirt today, guys. Come on. <laughs> so then how do you achieve the, the bitterness uh, goals for your beers? You've seen a lot of that come out of Whirlpool or yeah. uh, early stage dry hopping. Early stage dry hopping. Yep. So how much contribution do you s- see in bitterness from the dry hopping? Uh, well, we don't really we don't measure IBUs, yeah. but it... Even from a based, sensory perspective. Yeah, from I mean, the sensory you know, perspective. You, you can probably guess at an IBU contribution. And I mean, the, that. what do you think about the beer you're drinking right now? I don't know, 45 or so. Yeah, I think so. Like the computer software we're using says like 32 IBUs. All the bittering comes from uh, 212 degree Whirlpool. So we preload the Whirlpool on that one. It gets hit. Then we cool it down. Then we re we hop stand with another hop and then knock out. And yeah. then that has all 62 to 65 degree dry hopping for three mm. days. So no kettle. And there's still a decent amount of bittering element in that product. Yeah, and I can still taste it as it kind of lingers a little bit of bitterness that becomes more apparent uh, yeah. you know, at the end of the taste. Yeah, so, I mean, that is kind of our goal. The, on an IBU scale, we try to stay in this 25 to 45 range. Mm-hmm. We think that's a comfortable number, even though that in itself is subjective depending on the hot sure asset. Yeah, I think I made that up. Mm. You know, well, and, and I think even when we talk about numbers like that, it's useful to say like a perception of that, a yeah. perception of 25 to 45, because well, your number look- your number can be higher than that in a technical sense. And yet, if there's enough residual sweetness in the beer, it can lower what that perception of, of the IBU is. Who well, would- untapped doesn't mind the hop, say like 140 IBUs. I, yeah, I don't know where that I, came from. Yeah, in I mean, you guys know you can edit that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. it's too much work. <laughs> now, who who is the brewery that has like the highest IBU beer? Is it Ninkasi that has like that one twenty one IBU beer or something like that? I don't know. You know, McKellar did a one thousand IBU. Oh, beer. Yeah, right, thir- yeah, theoretical even- one thousand IBU. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, no, we're we're nowhere near that theoretically. So what's next on the horizon for Aslan? You all have ramped up your production, yeah. and you know you you hinted at it earlier about a new brew house, um, but that seems like a, a big project coming on the on the horizon for you. Yeah. So high level product stuff is finished the Herndon tasting room, um, which is also our sour barrel facility right now. Um, so right now you don't operate a tasting room. You are uh, yeah. We are to go only. Just selling cans right out of the brew house. <laughs> we are the old treehouse model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's us. We uh, package product Monday through Friday, and now we've moved to a model of releasing same day um, or the next day, and kind of just rolling with it as we we grow. Um, high level is open the tasting room in Herndon, which will facilitate mostly this this production site. Uh, launch and open the brewery and tasting room in Alexandria and then from there get our feet wet with some regional distribution and kind of stabilize a market and reevaluate in the next year to 18 months like what is our next steps so so this is a big move this brewery that you're going to open production brewery you're going to open well, production brewery and tasting room in Alexandria mm-hmm. uh, will take you from this eight and a half barrel 10 hectoliter system into a 30 barrel brew house yeah. uh, and a whole lot more beer um, how do you uh, is, is there a market for this let's find out <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what do you think he does a lot of the market research stuff and has a has a plan yeah I mean you look at successful breweries in other yeah. cities it's, it's totally based on population um, if you make a high quality beer in a population of seven to eight million people like we have here we can be producing 30,000 barrels to 50,000 barrels, no problem. Sell, right. it, sell it just within the region. And with that kind of population, multiple breweries can be producing oh, that, exactly. that kind of volume of beer. Yeah, we look at like Chicago, yeah. New York City, um, Atlanta. 
So, I mean, I think we can we can grow to be a fairly large brewery and not leave this D.C., Maryland, Virginia metro area. Um, you know, personally, I, I think I think Kai and I both agree we don't really want to distribute to California and Colorado, um, like Bells and Founders of the World sure, do. Sure. Um, we'll we'll do spot distribution to larger cities because people that try our beer in those cities will tend to travel or when yeah. they travel to DC they seek Aslan out um, but that will be our distribution strategy and I think the market's ready for it there's no one in this region that's really doing that yeah port cities maybe they're, I mean they're at what 15,000 to 20,000 barrels I don't know yeah um, but other than that I mean who, who Vienna Lager would have been Devil's yeah, Backbone would have been but who's, who's really Devil, uh, DC Brow but other than DC Brow and Port City there's really not like a huge regional brewery in this area yet, um, and we think we can fill that gap. Yeah, there's a lot of us ramping up, like us, the Vale, Triple Crossing. All of the all of these people have like either ramp up in place or facilities in place to do that. Um, and now I guess it's not necessarily a battle because I think there's plenty of room for the three of us to do the same um, with the quality products that the three of us are putting out. So, um, and it's not to it's not an all inclusive list. I'm not trying to exclude anybody here because I think there's plenty of other great quality product or people with the systems in place to do this stuff. It's just the willingness to do it. So, yeah, I'm excited. That's basically where we are. So, yeah, big things on the horizon. Big things. You know, I, I was really struck when I, I, last night as I was doing some research, was looking at the, you know, the church key draft mm. list. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's always an interesting bellwether for me to, to look at how these influential bars and, you know, who they're putting on tap. And it was the breweries that you just mentioned. It was the Vale. It was you all. It was Triple Crossing. You know, filling out the the hoppy category and a few other categories as well. Um, and I think about the last time I went to Church Key, probably about a year and a half ago. You know, I think it was a year and a half ago for the Craft CBC, Brewers Conference. Yeah. Um, and of course, they had a different different draft list at that point because there were a lot of folks coming in. But at various points in the past, you know, I, I reference it here and there, and just looking at regional research. Um, didn't look like that a year and a half, two years ago. You know, the the, the breweries, you, know, you guys that are dominating that hoppy side of the list, uh, I mean, literally only popped up on that over the last year and a half. Mm. Um, and it r struck a chord with me, like, this is how fast beer is changing. Um, with that kind of speed of change, are, are you worried at all that, you know, making a large capital investment in something huge like that could, uh, you know, could be a wrong decision? Well, I think we look at it also as an efficiency play, yeah. right? So yeah. we're now doing four turns a day at 5,000 barrels. We can be doing one or maybe two turns a day to hit 8,000 barrels and still hit our same sales numbers that we're looking to yeah. looking to hit at this level. So I, th I think this move allows us to be a little bit more agile and adapt to the market at a quicker pace rather than where we're at now. Let's say lines go away. Sure. We're going to be putting, a, if we stayed at this size in the system, we'll be putting in a lot of effort to produce a lot of beer, which is going to be different when we have a 30 barrel system, which will be, you know, quote unquote, minimal effort, four times almost as less yeah. to produce the same amount of beer. That's uh, his very PC answer of saying, like, it's a challenge to be competitive in the market because there are a bunch of breweries that have popped up over the last few years, and this is not a shot or a jab at anybody, which means it probably will be because I just. <laughs> <laughs> just that's, that's like saying no offense no, before no you make offense. the statement. Yeah, right. exactly. And you know it's going to be offensive. But there are people who are mimicking products that are popular right now that yeah. just aren't doing well at it. And um, because of such the popularity in it, they're successful or doing okay. And they're able to maintain some kind of a base. At some point, there will be a shakeout. I don't know if this is a huge bubble that sure. everyone's afraid of is going to burst. There will be a shakeout. And that means there will be availability on those in those tap spaces that have knocked other beers off for local to take place. And if there is a strong, good product that is still local, that is in a price point that those retailers and wholesalers are looking for, um, the play that we're talking about puts us in a position to advance into those locations when that shakeout does happen, if it happens. And if not, like Drew's saying, then it's easier on the staff to stay here and be happy and, and make decent amount of beer still. How, how are you funding how, you know, where, where's the money come from to, to I'm get just, into a giant? I'm just pulling it all of my ass. <laughs> like, I'm just shitting money over here. It's, and it's, if that's off the record, you don't have to tell <laughs> <that>. <laughs> No, uh, it's, it's, it's all um, funded through the cash ca yeah. cash flows here as yeah. well as a uh, 504 loan. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. We try to keep as, min as small amount of debt on our balance sheet as possible. Yeah. So, 
Um, a lot of it's been just internal funding. We've been really conservative sure. with our cash flow management. So, yeah, the idea is that if this thing does go bad, that nobody loses um, everything. We can kind of walk Where away. Where do you keep that kind of debt to revenue level? Again, if if it's oh, um, I mean, right now it's the lowest it's been. I mean, yeah. we have, I mean, no debt. Wow, wow. So, um, you know, that's that's a a great place to be at this it's point. It's a fantastic place to so be. Yeah. We, we can Except if you're trying to garnish more debt. Yeah. They don't trust you. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, well, I always get, enjoy that, you know, talking to Corey from side project, you know, he's, he's spoken to me at length about that. I mean, they have only grown through cash and have not, they didn't take out debt to open a new brew house and, uh, and tap room. And, um, controlling your destiny by not owing anyone anything gives you a lot of flexibility out here in this business. And yeah. we're at a point where those breweries, whether it's Green Flash or whether it's Tallgrass in Kansas, who have, are over leveraged and are, or have that kind of debt overhang, I mean, they're they're going out of business. You know? Yeah, well, debt can be good, right? It can sure. allow you to grow, um, but it's got to be manageable. It's just same with your personal right. finances. Um, as long as it's manageable, it's like you know, everything in moderation. Um, and it seems like you all have you're managing to make a decent, reasonably high margin product, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that and, and I think one thing that gets lost on on beer consumers is they hear you know expensive beer, but they don't necessarily consider you know in a sixteen dollar six or four pack or a twenty dollar four pack is that also lets you pay people a living wage, you know, you know, pay health health insurance, you know, for employees. Um, you know, do uh, make these kinds of expansions and grow to improve their experience, um, you know, and ultimately let you make better beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that statement alone encompasses a whole bunch of issues that I think everyone in the brewing industry sees. One is the wage difference because everyone interprets that this is a blue collar job and that the people here are unskilled, un, uh, you know, labor employees, which to an extent can be true, but generally isn't. Like you were joking about before, a lot of guys that are in this industry are disgruntled engineers or like biotech guys that just decide to walk away from a job that have a like an education level that they have an expectation they're not going to be getting paid $10 an hour. Or there are home brewers that um, don't care they're getting paid $10 an hour because they're doing a passion. They're involved in a passion. But it, it says much more that the, about the consumer in general. They, they don't understand logistics. They don't understand price of acquisition and costs of goods sold, right? They just see the price tag and they think that instantly means revenue um, and how that cost of goods changes based on ingredient type. And that these sexy things that they want, like Galaxy, are $30 a pound. Like how, like a four pound to six pound per barrel Galaxy beer costs a shit ton of money to make when you extrapolate out just what those hops mean. Right. You know what I mean? And uh, when the consumer no, I doesn't think about see that, because that. right, you know, if you have a, a half barrel keg, a fifteen and a half gallon keg that a normal bar might spend one hundred and fifty dollars on, you could have one hundred and fifty dollars worth of hops in a single. Well, actually, maybe uh, one hundred fifty in, in in two of those kegs across sure. two of them, and so you know, half of the cost of that keg could just be the hops, and that yeah. you know, what I mean? yeah. paid for labor or all the other expenses that come in, you know, to make that beer. But the problem is because they have that mindset of blue collar workers blue collar product meaning beer which is in my opinion beaten into them from the macro side of the world yeah um they they think that that equates to price point because you're a blue collar worker because it's a blue collar product it should be blue collar pricing and that's not true they don't ask the same questions of the wine industry or the liquor industry as if you spent any time on the bourbon trail and you talk to them about like what a bourbon bottle and a mash really would cost them if they sold everything in that cost range or with like whatever minimal margin, we would never be trying to hunt Weller bottles for two hundred dollars a piece. You know what I mean? Like especially they're using cheap ingredients. It's corn, it's grain right? and corn, one, right? Like yeah. cheapest forms of sugar out there. It's uh, it's super interesting, and and, and the the best dynamic is to look at the wine industry, yeah. not not to yeah. negate anything that's done in the wine industry, but people don't ever ask questions about like what the cost of a bottle of wine is, and they equate that to quality, right? Like the same equation we were talking about before about distribution equaling um equaling quality like an expensive bottle of wine does not mean it's a good bottle of wine granted a cheaper bottle of wine probably means it's not a good bottle of wine but it doesn't mean that it's awful right right. and and there is a balance there right and and a comfortability to challenge that is where the consumers enter the market especially in the beer world they're comfortable to say like well i know better because 
I know what Budweiser is, and like I see it in my grocery store, and it should be X dollars. Well, there's a whole series of things that go into mitigating that cost and your perception of those things. I mean, that's kind of like walking into a you know a, a high end uh, you know clothing store and saying like, oh, I know that you know Walmart sells a shirt for four dollars, so you should charge four dollars for that. I mean, right. there are ways to get consumer goods down to that price point, but. That involves exploitation. That involves, you know, uh, third world country labor. It involves massive carbon footprint, of, you know, of, of transporting goods overseas. I mean, it involves, you know, depressing wages of your own employees so that they have to take federal assistance just to make things meet. I mean, or if you talk about food, yeah. uh, chemicals in the food, that right. artificial right. flavors. So. I mean, you just described my future business model, which is open a brewery in Malaysia with children and feed them chemicals so that I can make beer at cost. Like feed the kids chemicals. Feed the kids chemicals, like soil and green. Well, that's actually people, but anyway. Max profits. <laughs> Max profits. I mean, nobody's asking those kinds of questions, right? <laughs> and like, you may, we're making a joke of it, but it is true. Mm-hmm. Right. We, one thing that we were investing in our employees is like, hey, listen, you're gonna have a hard time for the first year or two here because we don't have a lot of money to pay on you, but we will get you guys healthcare. We will get you 401k matching. We will increase your salaries as long as you're showing the dedication and looking for ways to extend your stay here if you want to be part of this small family we have. Did you talk about the Progeny program? We haven't even discussed Progeny program yet. So, we, and what he's saying, good good leeway. Do you want to talk about the Progeny program? Sure. Do you want us to just keep running the show? Should we ask you Go questions now? Nope, nope. <laughs> Run with it. Tell so us about the Progeny program. I will, yeah. Um, so one of our core values or not really core values is to keep our employees happy and retain good employees um we have a really good team now so kind of created a program that allowed our brewers to um make a brand basically within our brand and the whole idea of the progeny program is to teach our brewers um how to basically brew from grain to glass from a business side and brewing operation side so they order the ingredients they write the recipe um, they create the processes, and with that, they um, get to keep the profit in the end with that huh. beer. So we have small tanks for the beer. Um, we also promised them that we would finance their brewery or help them find funding for the brewery when it's time for them to leave. Um, so it, one, it creates a more well-rounded brewer, um, and, but it also creates a more dedicated employee in the end. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the best part about being a small brewery with a program like that is that these it opens their eyes. So like when their front of the house employees are selling the cans and they see $20 coming in per four pack or whatever that price is, uh, they understand like, okay, well, there's $15.5 worth of ingredients in that set of four packs. Right. So like there's a very small margin. Now we have payroll and healthcare and the 401k matching going into that. Okay. There's a couple dollars left in that can for the business. So... It, it opens their mind or in their eyes. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make. The, I, I mean, if if they didn't see that, they could say, "Wow, they sold a hundred cases, and uh, each four pack was twenty dollars. What are they doing with all this money?" Right. Um, I think it kind of puts some things into perspective for them as they grow within their career. Yeah, that kind of you know open book approach is is a really good one. And, you know, then there are even big breweries like New Belgium that uh, kind of practice that with their own employee owners and uh, teaching even the you know production staff how to read a balance sheet and understand the the you know ins and outs of the business and you know being honest with people. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a it's a ethical way to move forward. Yeah, when they get old and and shitty, we'll euthanize them. It'll be clean. <laughs> Uh, we'll just, you know, take them to the vet. <laughs> oh, he broke an ankle. <laughs> broke an ankle. Come over here. I got something for you. Bring the sheet up. Bring the, get the green juice. Has that resulted in any, any new breweries yet? Uh, no, not yet. Um, we have three people in the program. Yeah. I mean, it just started. It's a, a, it's a, a year, year old. old. Yeah. Um, a few of them are talking about starting their own breweries, but, again, I don't know if they're quite there yet. Yeah. It yeah. takes a while to really... They just started understanding like the financials behind a single turn. Sure. Um, and they're busy in their own lives as well, so it's it, they have to brew on their own time. So the uh, the other benefit or the other effect this could have is they realize that they sure as hell don't want to run their own business yeah, and exactly. uh, yeah. grow an appreciation for for what they have. Yeah, one of our guys came out and said that he's like the logistic aspect of what you're asking me to do is extremely intimidating. Like 
I don't want to be the dude making the beer, building the recipes, figuring out how to warehouse all this shit, and then still having to contact these people to make sure that all of those elements can align correctly. Like that's extremely intimidating and scary. And if I mess that, I'm if I mess that up, like then the entire week or month or whatever shot, and now I got to reevaluate how I operate my business. Right. And that is so true. Right. You know? Right. As I say to a lot of folks that want to start breweries, um, the, I, I ask them, well, what's your hospitality experience? You yeah. know, because that's what this business is, like part of its production. But if you're running a tap room, part of it's also hospitality. Have you ever managed hospitality staff? Have you ever dealt with the kind of employees that work in a hospitality environment? If you haven't, um, you should do some research around that because yeah. folks can end up in a business that they, they didn't expect to be in pretty quickly. Yeah, that and way. if that isn't true of any of those breweries that have popped up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like with the awful things they've said to consumers, right? Yeah. Uh, like the one star stuff, yeah. reacting to that. Okay, like that may be your gut reaction right now, and it may make you feel better, but it's going to create bigger problems if you tell that guy those deepest, darkest thoughts you have just to insult him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not end on that note, but... Uh, <laughs> Take that, you dummies. <laughs> and it's over. <laughs> but it's it's starting to sound like beer o'clock to me right now. And uh, But Drew and Kai, I appreciate you all sitting in on the, the Craft Beer Brewing podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to trying a little bit more of your beer before I have to jet on to my next location here in Northern Virginia. Uh, if people want to learn more about Aslan, where can they find out more about what you do or uh, absorb some of the beautiful photography that you talked about earlier? Instagram and Facebook are the two accounts that have the most attention right now. And you guys are what at um, at Aslan Beer underscore Co. Yeah. Do uh, you want to give them your number? They could text you. Yeah, too. you guys could text me at um, 703-999-2. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Actually, it's uh, at Aslan Beer Co. Is the Instagram, and then Aslan Beer Co. Facebook. Um, look for an upcoming story on Aslan Beer Company and uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And uh, if you have uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we really hope you'd subscribe to the magazine. Uh, we uh, we put a lot of work into making sure that we can give you high-quality content. And I'm pretty sure that these guys are going to share one of those recipes that we talked about uh, in the upcoming uh, magazine store. Why don't you put out a Twitter poll and see, or Instagram poll and see which recipe these people want. And we'll, we might abide. A Twitter poll. Nobody uses Twitter anymore. Uh, the president uses Twitter every day. Exactly. MySpace, bro. <laughs> yeah, can you put a poll on MySpace? <laughs> or text Kai at. <laughs> or text me at. Well, you can subscribe to our magazine at beerandbrewing.com. You can also uh, find us at Craft Beer Brew on uh, other social medias like Instagram. Um, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Cheers. 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 This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.